Hey, what is going on, Vancouver? It is wonderful to, I guess, kind of be with you guys, to be with you virtually here and to have this opportunity to speak to you. Uh, it's been a little while since I've uh, been present in Vancouver, for sure. I think you guys just have a thing against us Americans, haven't let us come hang out for a bit. Like, uh, you remember when, like, when you were kids, like, it's like, yeah, my mom says I'm not allowed to hang out with you anymore. I kind of feel like we're in that sort of a situation, but hopefully someday soon, uh, like, we'll be able to cross borders and actually uh, see each other's faces and, and be together, uh, enjoy your politeness and, uh, and our arrogance. And, uh, and, and all the dry humor that we can possibly stand. So that'll be a wonderful, wonderful day when we can actually do that again. Um, I just gotta tell you, it is great, even though I um, haven't been able to physically uh, visit in a while, uh, it's just been so great being with Pastor Greg and uh, getting to spend several Zoom sessions with him, phone calls with him, and stay connected to him uh, throughout this process. I just wanna tell you what an amazing pastor that you have. Both him and Jonathan are just incredible. I know you've got an incredible staff and leaders throughout your church, uh, but Greg has just been an amazing friend to me. Uh, gosh, over the last 13, 14 years now, and uh, can't imagine being a pastor without him, quite frankly. He's just been a real gift from God to me, and it's uh, one of those things when you when you are just uh, in the church, sometimes you can lose your sense of appreciation for how blessed you are as a church. Kind of like uh, you smell a scent too long and you can go kind of just numb to the scent. And uh, But anyway, you guys are truly blessed by not only Greg, but uh, the Mitchell family. And, uh, and you guys are just an amazing church. And I'm really excited to talk to you uh, today about uh, an awesome God that we serve. Now, we are entering into a week of prayer and fasting in our whole Every Nation Worldwide family of churches, of which we are obviously sister churches and part of that. And this is a week where we are setting aside a time to seek God specifically in prayer. And there's usually a theme that's attached to it. And this year, it's awesome God. And it's exploring uh, the deeper hearts and realities of who God is. And, and in one sense, like, I just can't help myself but acknowledge what feels to me like the giant cliche Christian elephant in the room, that yes, awesome God is a relatively cheesy old Christian song. And I can't help but think of that versus, <laughs> like, God. So I'm just, I'm having the song play in the background of my head uh, more than I'm thinking of the deep theological profound truth that that statement represents. Uh, and if that's you, just welcome, welcome to that journey. Uh, but all that being said, the statement of awesome God is an important one to really absorb and consider here today. And that's what we're gonna do, at least tackling a piece of that. I'm gonna be in Psalm 62 here in just a moment. And if you wanna open your Bibles and turn to there so that you're ready to go when we dive into it, then, then we'll be all good to go there. One of the things that's really great about this series that we're entering into, the season we're entering into of exploring uh, the depths of our awesome God, is we get a look at God, not just in terms of what he's done, but we get a look in terms of who he is and really explore uh, the depths of his character and the nuances of his personality and the reality of his being. There is no more worthy pursuit. There's no more like beneficial thing that we can do with our thoughts, with our time, with our energy, than actually explore who God actually is. It falls into the basic kind of academic category of theology, but rather than just it being some sort of ivory tower sort of category that a few people who 
don't have the sufficient social skills to make it in the real world have just isolated themselves in rooms with thick books written by dead white people. Like, rather than just seeing theology as a very cold, stale, academic sort of idea, the truth behind theology is that all of us are theologians. All of us have a theology. The only question is whether it's a good one. Theology is simply just what we believe about God to be true. And who you believe God to be is going to be the greatest determining factor, not only in how you relate to him, but how you actually live as a result of him. And if you believe that God is something that he isn't, your life is going to go sideways in any number of different directions. And so we believe firmly, firmly that knowing who God is, is central to actually living the life that God has called us to live. That you can't just substitute a few rules or principles or disciplines or actions of what we feel like we're supposed to go and do of being really nice people or really generous people or really philanthropic people while missing the whole core and essence of who God is. And so this, exploring, um, not just that uh, God is awesome, but why? Why is he so awesome? Why would he inspire awe? Why would he be a person that would really consume our imaginations and our, our, our attention and our affections? Why can we say this, not just on a cliche level, but why is this really resonantly, powerfully true for the Christian church over the last 2,000 years? And, and why is this really important for us here and now? These are all the questions that I believe the scriptures are offering us an opportunity to engage with, to explore, to encounter, and let's, uh, let's do just that here today together, you guys, through Psalm 62. Let's explore this awesome God and see something that is arguably one of the most foundational aspects of how awesome he truly is. So, Psalm 62, you guys. Psalm 62. Psalm 62 begins like this, and we're going to read through the whole psalm. It's not super long, um, but here we go. It says, truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely you intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies and with their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Yes, my soul. Find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they're nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. It's a pretty powerful psalm. And like many of the Psalms do, it's a very personal account of someone kind of working through something in their own life on an emotional level, on an experiential level. There's obviously some amount of adversity or hardship. There's adversarial relationships that they're encountering and they're trying to work all that out 
in the context of God and who he is and what he means to the author of this psalm. Like all the writings of the Bible, they're done with just incredible literary precision and brilliance on so many different levels. And sometimes when we read them just in the English translation of them and just kind of read through them, we don't always get to see the full depths and appreciation of exactly what's being written. And sometimes it's hard to take away the full weight and depths of exactly what's being said. But here in this psalm, we actually get a few different patterns and literary devices used to help us uh, have a better grasp and understanding of all that's being said here. And so what I want to do with Psalm 62 here is show you a little of the method to the madness, if you will, show you some of the structure that's being used here. And then I want to explore the key ideas that that structure really draws out and brings to light about God and specifically how awesome we would say that he truly is. So the first thing I need to introduce you to before we can understand Psalm 62 is something called a chiasm. A chiasm is a very common literary structure used in a lot of different biblical writings, both Old and New Testament. It's extremely common. And what it essentially is, is a pattern of writing where you write in sequence of an A, B, C, B, A, where essentially the A and the A relate to each other, are similar, if not the same, The B's relate to each other and similar, if not the same. And the C is the kind of middle point of it all. And so you almost see like a mirrored image of a sort of text. It's why sometimes when you're reading uh, Psalms like this or many, many other passages throughout the Bible, there's even stories in the Bible that are written in a chiastic structure. Some of them are much, much longer. Some of them have much more elements to them, but still follow that sort of mirrored Uh, pattern, if you will, and it offers up all kinds of fascinating uh, ways to see the the way the authors are organizing the material. So if we were to look at the chiastic structure of what's going on here, uh, you would see the A, the B, the C, the B, the A. That the A, he's saying that the Lord is my salvation. The B is um, people are really terrible, (laughs) but people, God is God is pretty good, but people, not, the, not so, not so much. People are really unreliable. People are really hurtful. People can really do a lot of destruction and devastation to me. People can claim to be one thing, but, but actually be something very, very different. People can actually bless with their mouths and then curse with their hearts. They can put on a good outside front, but inside, oh, there's something that can be really, really off. God is the one that I ultimately trust in. People are really, at the end of the day, quite unreliable. And then you get to see where he actually starts repeating the A phrase a little bit. And he begins to say, yeah, indeed, the Lord is my salvation. Trust in the Lord. He's almost exhorting himself. Trust in him as your salvation. Put your hope in him, which is the little addition added here in this little section. He's your fortress. You will not be shaken. And then the next B, you're going to expect to line up with the previous B. The humanity was unreliable, uh, two-faced, maybe is a way of saying it, in in, uh, the first B. And now the second B section, he goes on to say, like, you peoples, trust in God. I'm trusting in him, and I'm exhorting you to trust in him. Trust in him. Don't trust in people. Don't trust in wealth. Don't trust in the systems of society that can produce for you the illusion of control and safety. Trust in God instead. He's the source that's far better than anything else you're going to find in this world. 
and then the final A comes in, and you kind of expect it to parallel the first A, and it does, it just takes a little bit of a different twist. In the first A, it tells us about, like, that this person has deep confidence that the Lord is his salvation. And in the last A, I think it tells us why he has so much confidence that the Lord is his salvation. And he says, there's two things that I have heard. Something profoundly and powerfully true that I have heard, that I have known, that has been revealed to me. Power, O oh God, belongs to you, and unfailing love is yours. And this is why there's such an anchor of confidence in the salvation specifically of God. Why, even when every scheme in the world could be like aimed right at you to take you down, it's why there's yet a confidence. There's an ability to survive, to not be shaken, to actually be okay and well, even though everything around you is very not well. The reason behind the confidence, the deep confidence in this salvation, rescuing, secure position that we have in God is God's power and love. His limitless power, his unfailing love. Another way that you could categorize those two things are God's greatness and his goodness. Some theologians, depending on kind of the verbiage they like to use, try to categorize things and put things into boxes to understand. But essentially, they're saying the same thing. That why is God so trustworthy? How can we put so much confidence in him when it seems like there can be everything potentially going on in our lives personally and in the world more broadly that could really scream at us to be afraid, to be anxious, to be nervous, to be stressed, and to even fear for our own lives, livelihoods, well-being? What is it? that actually holds us with an anchor of hope? It's the depths of the truth of who God is. His greatness and his goodness. Now, it would be easy, as it is often easy to do, to like read past this so quickly, especially if you've been a Christian for, I don't know, a few years, maybe a few decades. Because reading through the Bible at times just feels like you're hearing the same ideas and the same vocabulary, like just thrown at you time and time again. And you're like, I get it. I get it. God is good. God is great. Wonderful. Um, But there is a moment to just sit back and realize that these were written. This was written by real people, inspired by a real God. And there was a real relationship between the two going on. And there's something profound about what God is revealing in this moment about himself. That if we're to say that God is awesome, that he's actually worthy of worship, that he's someone that we should actually live for, that he's actually a being that, that we are actually made to image or represent and sacrifice for, to actually live meaningfully and holistically in relationship with him, what makes him so worthy of that? Power and love. Power and love greatness, and goodness. And so let's say a few things about those two things. The first thing to say is that when we speak of God's power, 
We're speaking of his ability. What is he actually capable of? What can he actually do? What we're not talking about is some sort of character trait, uh, some sort of personality trait. We're simply speaking to his competency, if you will, or his ability, what he's actually able to do. When we speak of God's love or God's goodness, if we want to frame it with that language, we're speaking not of God's ability, but of his identity, who he is, his character, his personhood. And what's important to know about God's greatness and his goodness, ironically, is that it's his goodness that is actually much greater than his greatness. Another way of putting it is that God's ability <clears throat> always flows out of his identity. That it's actually God's goodness that completely motivates and determines everything that he does. Everything he does or does not do is completely ruled and governed and constrained by his love. And so to understand one, you have to understand the other. You can take a God who maybe is all-powerful, and you can have a God who's maybe all-loving, but unless and until you haven't arrived at the image that God has given to us in terms of understanding himself, that he is both these things all the way turned up to 11, as far as you can actually crank them up, these two categories are all the way tuned up, and they're actually leaned into each other significantly. And the reason why we hold these two things powerfully together, to even come close to making the same conclusions that the author of the psalm can make, that indeed we should receive his exhortation to trust in God at all times, not put our trust in anything else other than him, no matter the temporary security it might provide us. The reason why is because God is all-loving and all-powerful. Salvation can truly come from him because these two things are actually profoundly true. Now, this is at, I would say, the bedrock of a solid theology proper, of an actual exploration of who God is, that God's ability and his identity, his love and his power, his goodness and greatness, these things are actually at the core of anything else you want to explore about God. Things might build off of that, but they'll never go deeper than that. And here are some of the implications of why this is so significant. Some of you, that uh, maybe you're watching this even now, and uh, maybe you're not really sure where you stand with the whole Christianity thing, where you stand with the whole God thing, Jesus thing. Or maybe even some of you as Christians, you still have doubts and you still have questions. Well, one of the age-old questions that has arisen about God that has seemed to tap into just about every culture at some point and has, comes in prominence and kind of weighs and ebbs and flows in terms of how significant it is for people at different times, but it never seems to fully go away. It's simply the question of, if God is really all loving, how can there be so much evil in the world? Or if God is really, if he's really all powerful, like, couldn't he truly be loving? Essentially, you take God and then you take the world around you and all the events you see happening you take even your own life and what's happening to you and you put all that together and it raises the question that many have raised and maybe they articulate it slightly differently, but they essentially address the two core aspects that this psalm does. God's love and power. Can he really be both? <clears throat> maybe he's all loving, but if he truly is perfectly all loving, 
he can't actually be all-powerful because he would be doing way more. <laughs> He'd be stopping way more horrible things uh, and promoting way more good things. Like he would just be doing, he would be able to do more. So great, he's all-loving. That's a nice thought. That's wonderful. But at the end of the day, he's really not quite that strong. So we need to hedge our bets a little bit. You know, maybe God provides some sort of assistance here and there, but you need to be the one to take primary responsibility for wielding power or control over your life, over society in general, because yeah, God's on your side. He's with you in the whole thing. He's really loving or whatever. He's like, he likes you, but he can't really help you. And the other side of it, maybe you do have a God who is all powerful, but you could not say that he is all loving because look at the world. Look at the world he's made. Could you really say that God is all loving? No. So this kind of a God that's all powerful, first of all, you'd be stupid to not go along with him because if he is all powerful, he's all powerful. And your power compared to his is almost silly. Uh, it's a little ridiculous. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it reminds me sometimes, my kids are a little bit older now. They're approaching their, I have two teenagers and those quickly approaching teenage them very quickly. Uh, but now when I'm around, especially young families with toddlers, it's very interesting to see an 18-month-old tiny little human being that has found their favorite word, which universally seems like it's no. It's no. It's no. Uh, it's no. Uh, my little niece is a classic example. Her favorite word seems to be no. <laughs> just no. I just, and it just seems to be like uh, this. It's almost comical. It's frustrating. It's uh, deeply challenging and it's exhausting at times as parents, but once you've kind of graduated from that stage and you take on all kinds of other problems, but you look back at that stage and you just realize, my goodness, like I can, I can dominate you. <laughs> I, can, I can force you to do whatever I want to. Like you just look at the power differential between the toddler and the parent and they can say no, but so what? If God truly is all powerful, well, you don't really have a choice. However, if God is all-powerful, but not necessarily all-loving, because we can never actually conclude that, if the world is all as messed up as it is, and we can't take both these things to be actually true, well, then here's where we land. God's all-powerful. We can't escape him. We can't, not be, we can't just simply not deal with him or pretend he's not there. But what we're going to have to do is play a game to make sure he uses that power for our side. He's not going to do it of his own accord. He's not good. He doesn't love us. So if we can make somehow our, his blessing of us to be in his best interest, if we can kind of play that game, like I'll sacrifice this so that you'll bless me with that. I'll like speak well of you in these ways and use these positive words about you to make you like build up your ego a little bit. And then maybe you'll help me out or use power on my behalf. Like we, and we figure out maybe there's certain routines or certain patterns or certain things that just kind of, just kind of build up and boost the ego of God sufficiently. And if God really feels like I am a good enough brown noser to him, then maybe he'll use the power I want when I say I need it. And this comes to this tiresome aspect of the world called religion, where we're never entirely sure what God thinks of us, or if he even thinks about us, but we've given our lives because we know we desperately need a power that's above us. And so we're frantically trying to figure out, what can I give him? How can I bless him? What can I do to get his attention? 
Do I have to shout really loud? Do I have to give a lot of money? Do I have to make some special sacrifice? Is there some sort of ritual to perform? What is it? Do I have to study a certain text? Do I have to know a certain song? Like, what is it? And then we frantically live our lives under the cloud of insecurity and uncertainty, hoping that maybe, maybe, occasionally, God will use his power to help us if we have sufficiently blessed him. It may be a bit of a cynical way of viewing religion in the world, but I don't think it's entirely inaccurate. But if you put both of them together, love and power, you do have to deal with the reality that, well, if God really is all-loving and all-powerful, this world is really messed up. And just like the author of this psalm, really bad stuff does happen to me. And even the people that God has created and the situations that even God places me in don't always go well. So what do we say to this? Well, one of the big problems that we have is I can't provide you the perfect argument to provide certainty in your head that certainly God is love and power. Don't worry. Just apply this simple mathematical formula, study it under this specific spiritual microscope, and you'll see. You'll know, and everything will be fine. The world that God has designed is one in which humans are required to trust. Who we trust, what we trust, is up for grabs. But you never get around the reality that if God is all-loving and all-powerful, if this is who God reveals himself to be, if this is who God demonstrates himself to be, we also have competing ideas about God. Ideas from the world, ideas from the unseen realm of God's enemies, and ideas that even come internally from our own hearts that are telling us constantly, oh, he's not that good, or he's not that powerful. You better hedge your bets. And so we sit in this tension of which story will we believe? What will we actually trust about God? Will we seek him for our security and salvation? Will we submit our lives to him? Not just because he's all powerful and we need him, but because he deeply loves us and we trust him. And though we don't have this certainty of some sort of mathematical formula to get us to that place, we do have evidence. We do have weighty evidence. And for the Christian, that evidence finds no, though there are infinite amounts of examples, there's no more ultimate example than the cross. And so for the Christian, when we look to the cross, to see this is the fulfillment that all things in the book of Psalms had been leading up to. We look at the cross and realize something profound has happened. The power of God and the love of God 
were turned all the way up on the cross. The power to overcome sin, death, the devil, hell. And the love that actually drove him to the cross in the first place. To be willing to absorb our sin. To take on our pain and our guilt. So that we might not only see, but trust that God is indeed exactly who he says he is. All powerful, all loving. And as soon as you have the dials of God's power and love turned high enough in volume, they will arrive at the cross. Where what you can't say is that God was somehow lacking power because he gained an ultimate victory. And you can't say that God is unloving because he did something more sacrificial than our imaginations can even bear. And though we might say, I don't understand why God permits evil in the world, or I don't understand why he does everything that he does or doesn't do, why he doesn't do, why the prayers I pray, he doesn't answer in the timing I want or in the way I want or at all. What the cross tells us loudly and clearly, the answer that it does offer to us is that this is the loudest evidence that God is loving and powerful. He's beautifully merciful and just. He's beautifully wrathful and holy, compassionate, faithful, forgiving. All these things dialed all the way up, expressed in his love by using his power to set us free and to overcome our enemies, even while we were his enemies. God's power, God's love, God's goodness, and God's greatness. And it's his goodness, it's his love that informs everything that he does. God could have used his power in any number of ways to heal this world, fix this world, restore this world, redo this world. But instead, it was his love that drove him to renew this world, to restore it, to actually take our broken lives and redeem them. It's his perfect love that's actually demonstrated on the cross and then throughout all of history. And though we don't fully understand it, there's a piece of that simply is we're not him. And we're not perfect love. And we don't have perfect wisdom. And we don't have perfect knowledge. And we don't have perfect ability. And if we could do anything, and if our ability was unlimited, heaven help us because our motivations are not quite like the God of the Bible. And there's no way to even begin to fathom how God can like thread the needle of mercy and justice in our world to make sure that chaos does not reign. And yet we're not all cowering under mountains. Like he, there's some way in which God is ruling this world that you can criticize it all you want to, but it is beautifully leading to the reality of restoration and reconciliation as our hearts are being wooed to his where we get to enjoy him as he enjoys us and love him as he's already loved us and trust that his power will always be available to be used on our behalf and benefit. 
Never will he be reluctant to use it, but he will always use it out of his love. He's not going to wait for us to brown nose him. He's not going to wait for us to do something good enough for him to qualify for it. The essence of his power will always be dictated by the reality of his love. When we say that God is awesome, we're saying this because he is all powerful and all loving and there is none like him. You can find ideas of God that claim to be all powerful. You can find ideas of God that might claim to be loving. But never do you find the perfect culmination of two of those things coming together where a God would die for his creation on a cross. Never will you find these two things come together that satisfy the deepest need of our soul, which is trust. Which is why, which is why the psalmist calls us all trust in him at all times, people. Trust in him. Trust in him. Why? He's all powerful and he's all loving. But I don't understand why. Oh, but trust in him because your understanding of why is not a prerequisite for trust. And the evidence of God's love and power was foreshadowed in the Psalms on the cross, but now we see it in hindsight. And no matter what we go through, no matter what evidence we feel is lacking, we will always, at the very least, have that. And so we base our lives off this. And I don't trust anything that's not fully trustworthy for the thing my soul most deeply needs. A rock, a refuge, a fortress, a strong tower. Salvation itself. It's the very reason why I can come to God fully flawed as I am. Because of his perfect love and faithfulness to me. And I know that he'll use his power for my benefit. I know that he will war against my sin with the goal of completely drawing and bringing life out of me. And so one of the questions that then becomes here is have we allowed ourselves to fully and deeply consider and weigh the love and power of God, his goodness and his greatness? Some of us, if we're being honest, kind of lean more towards one side or the other. It seems maybe by personality or our families of origin or the cultures we may have been a part of, where we focus in on his love or his power, and these things maybe resonate with us a little bit more. But what the Psalms and the scriptures as a whole are calling us to do is pull these two things together. And when we do, we arrive at an awesome God who is unlike anyone else in the universe. He's completely unique, completely deserving of all that you are, not as an obligation, but as a complete delight. That God so loves and delights in you that he poured out his own self, his very own son, so that you might be brought home. That the greatest power in the universe was given save you and rescue you from an eternity apart from him, from death itself. And if God didn't spare his own son, if God has indeed saved you in the most eternal sense, how much more will he care for you, provide for you, consider you, heal you, love you, and walk with you all the days of your life? Trust in him at all times, people. 
pour out your heart to him because he actually cares about you. Don't find yourself getting swallowed up by all the false gods that don't have perfect love or immeasurable power. Don't give yourself away to anything less than him. Trust in him at all times. And when the voices of the world, the flesh, and the devil all rise up to tell you he's not all that he says he is, his love or his power is lacking, we remember. We remember our own stories. We remember the story of the cross. We remember the story of God from beginning to end and his faithful love that has driven his amazing power to always act on our behalf. You don't always deserve it. Don't always understand it. But if everything was building up to the resurrection of Jesus and the renewal of all creation, then surely we can say, I don't understand it all but I will trust that he is all powerful and all loving. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day that you've given us to explore the depths of just how awesome you are. And I'm praying that you would minister to hearts that have a shallow view of your love or your power. And Father, I'm asking that you'd revive it inside of us that there would be an awe renewed in us, that there would be a glad surrender of our lives to you once again, not because we have to, but because it is the greatest joy that we get to. Father, we love you because you first loved us and we trust you because there's no one that can provide for us or protect us like you can. God, we say all these things in the name that is all-powerful, and all loving. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.